Rico plagiarism and the declaration of conscience. What the heck is going on with a fourth Trump prosecution? I'm Matt Robeson, Balance of Power Roundtable, part of the Beyond Politics podcast. Everywhere podcasts are heard. And of course, Blue Amp channel on YouTube, joined as always by former prosecutor, former Democratic U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes, and our conservative commentator, analyst, and political consultant, Alicia Preston. Peter Baker in the New York Times started off his news analysis this morning by saying, this is all washing over us. We've become numb to this. It's just another day. But yet, it should not wash over us. This should shock us. Another prosecution of Donald Trump. Paul, as always, we're going to lean on you and your prosecutorial experience. There's a lot of discussion in the wake of charges dropping in Georgia overnight about the use of the racketeering statute known as RICO. By the way, every time I say RICO, Alicia you needs to say, swine. and if you're old enough to get that joke, congratulations, you're in our demographic, the RICO statute. So my swine. understanding of this is that this was a federal law passed in 1970 that was then duplicated in 33 states to allow prosecutors to go after criminal conspiracies, specifically the mafia. And the idea was to be able to go after groups of people who were all coordinating together and in hierarchical organizations so that mob bosses who were calling the shots couldn't hide behind the soldiers who were doing most of the criming. Paul, is my understanding correct. Yeah, pretty much. And it was first used to go after organized crime and the mafia at the federal level. Georgia, Trump now faces 13 new counts of felony indictments, bringing his grand total to 91 felony counts. In when do we get to 100? Like, what happens when we get to a century on what felony happened? counts? Oh, a century. He gets a special award. He gets a gold star. What happened on the Today Show? Who, who was the weatherman who used to, <laughs> every time someone turned 100, they got a shout uh, out on the Today Show? Anyway, wait, let's not, don't, let's not get distracted here. So Georgia adopted its RICO law in 1980. It makes it a crime to participate or have or maintain a control of a, quote, enterprise through a, quote, pattern of racketeering activity. And an enterprise can be one person or more who then commit or attempt to commit or solicit or coerce or intimidate someone else to commit one or more of three dozen state crimes that are listed in the law. The prosecutor in this case, Fannie Willis, the district attorney in Atlanta, has used racketeering often in her career. She's gone after gangs. She's gone after rappers. She's gone after all kinds of people previously. Although RICO prosecutions are not, they're, while they're not unusual, they're not generally the meat and potatoes of most state prosecutors. So under the Georgia statute, two acts of trying to commit one of the three dozen crimes are required to meet the standard of a pattern of racketeering activity. There are a number of different crimes that everybody in this huge indictment is charged with. Just so I understand, overnight, you had a dream. I'm not making this up. You told me about this before we I got did. in the air. I, I, in which you had to go defend Jennifer Aniston. I want to use the friends analogy here. I want to use the friends analogy. There are various charges thrown around, but under a RICO statute, each individual who's indicted doesn't have to have done 
all of the charges. That's Correct. that's key to one of these mafia indictments where you might have some soldiers, you might have some middlemen, you might have people who are intimidating witnesses, you might have people who are doing larceny. There are all kinds of crimes. And the point is, if you do any one of those crimes, and in the friends analogy, if Rachel is off, I don't know, like selling counterfeit muffins, and Joey is committing fraud, pretending to be an actor, and Ross is just being annoying. Jennifer is just meeting in the apartment with them to talk about it and make sure that things are going right and keeping the books. Right. Um, Each of them is committing a crime individually, but they're friends is the key point. They're all part of a criminal conspiracy of friends. Racketeering activity prosecution. So in this instance, Donald Trump doesn't have to have individually, he made the call to Brad Raffensperger, but he doesn't have to have individually committed all the crimes here. You have Rudy Giuliani committing crimes. The indictment alleges that. And then Sidney Powell committed some crimes. And then Jeffrey Clark committed some crimes. And remember, Donald Trump is implicated in all of it because they're all friends. Not just because they're all friends, but because he has either solicited coerced or someone else to commit those crimes. So Jennifer has not only kept the books, she's part of the planning about this enterprise, which has been going on for a while. All you have to do is watch TV and you can see that this has gone on in plain sight. It's like Donald Trump knowing about these meetings. He talks to Mark Meadows. He talks to Rudy. They tell him what's going on. Mark goes out and does the bad thing in Georgia. Rudy goes out and does the bad thing in Georgia. Trump is on the phone to Raffin, which is evidence of his knowledge of this overall scheme, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we haven't seen all the evidence, but that's generally how it worked. He's the king. He's Marlon Brando. It's it's ironic that you bring this up because the deep irony here, and Alicia, I want to talk about your boy, Rudy Giuliani here. Rudy Giuliani wasn't responsible Why? for the first RICO oh. prosecution. I was so sailing on. He was responsible for the second major RICO prosecution. He indicted 11 organized crime figures, basically the heads of the five families. You were just alluding to Marlon Brando. That's what The Godfather is about. It's about the five families. Rudy Giuliani is the man who took them down, and the tool he used to do it was the RICO statute. And now he himself is charged under the RICO statute. Alicia, you've actually had to run against this guy in your Republican political consulting life. And you've also worked for him. What happened? All I'm going to say is this. Rudy Giuliani, the man I knew, I haven't spoken to him in years, but when I knew him, was a great man, did great things for New York, did great things for this country after 9-11. Skipping ahead in a completely unrelated statement, I don't know how many men and women will ruin their lives, their reputation, and their legacy for Donald Trump. Many already have. I hope no more do. We see the 18 co-conspirators indicted in this. These are all people who have ruined their lives, their reputations, their futures, and their legacies for one man who has offered them nothing in return. I don't understand it. It's a fog. It's a fever. It's a cult, and it needs to end. Paul, one of the main charges that Donald Trump lobbed here was that this is timed to coincide with his run for the presidency, and therefore it's a politically motivated prosecution. The response to that is malarkey. This is the time that it takes for a case of this magnitude. You've prosecuted white collar criminal crimes in New Hampshire, not in Georgia. But can you just speak to this? Is this indeed 
the length of time that a case of this complexity takes, or does Trump have a point? Remember that the first this case went to a special grand jury, which issued a report, which is still confidential. We didn't see the report. That special grand jury was not an indicting grand jury. So it then had to go to another grand jury for the indictments. And given the scope of the charges here and the number of defendants that the prosecutor chose to indict in a wide-ranging conspiracy, and given the complexity that is going to be presented to any prosecution from a conspiracy involving 18 people, think about a courtroom, people, where when this comes to trial, and in Georgia it may be televised, we talked about this on a recent show about whether or not the federal prosecution of Trump would be or could be or should be televised. But think about a state court that allows televised proceedings, and you've got 18 defendants sitting in court, each with a separate defense. Now, it's not likely that all 18 will end up going to trial, but the complexity and scope of this prosecution makes it highly unlikely that this case will go anywhere near resolution before the election in November of 2024. Can we talk about that for a second? Fannie Willis has chosen to try all 19 indicted conspirators together. Jack Smith, in the case we discussed two weeks ago, in his federal case with the various related crimes that he's charging there, chose to not indict the six unindicted co-conspirators. And the theory is that he chose to do that to speed things up, because if you have six people all on trial at once, you have six sets of attorneys, six opening statements, six, all of them can file motions. And pointing the finger at the other guy. And you have multiple cross-examinations. You have, anyway, so now Fannie Willis is saying, hold my beer. I'm going to go all the way three times that to 19. Is this, is this trial going to happen during Donald Trump's natural lifespan? A lot of people are questioning the wisdom of bringing charges against 19 people all in the same indictment. And it's a very ambitious kind of prosecution. All right. I feel like besides having to have a sad weigh-in on Rudy Giuliani, Alicia hasn't gotten to weigh in very much. I want to talk about where we're at. It's 91 <laughs> counts against Donald Trump. The, one I, felony I, I want to go even I want to go even higher level than that. In in 1988, there was a Democratic US senator who was doing pretty well in the presidential nomination process, regarded as potentially one of the strongest candidates in the field. And reports emerged that he might have plagiarized some sections of a stump speech that he gave. And a few weeks later, he had to drop out of the race over those allegations. Plagiarism. That person was Joe Biden. And now here we are 35 years later and Donald Trump faces 91 felony counts, 91 felony counts. And he is innocent until proven guilty. But there is a mountain of evidence against him. And no one seriously believes that he did not try to overturn through underhanded and potentially criminal means a democratic election in the United States of America. And yet, virtually the entire Republican Party leadership is rallying behind him. I'm at a loss for words here, Alicia. I, how do you think about this? How do you and your small 
brave band of Republicans who do not have the time of day for this kind of thing. How do you soldier on and try to like wrest your party back from the brink of insanity? I'm not trying to help my party do anything. Look, let's back up. Our standards have gone way down. In 1980, we also wouldn't have reelected a man who had sex with an intern in the Oval Office and got disbarred for lying to a jury. He would never have gotten reelected. But there we were with Bill Clinton. Our standards have gone down for 30 well, years. We found out about that after he was reelected. To be but, fair. And we still loved him. He still had a, what, 412% approval rating or something ridiculous. And the standards have just gone way down in what we expect from our leaders. In Washington now, that also shows that we don't hold them in the kind of regard we used to in generations past. We used to look up to these folks. Now we don't. And Donald Trump brings that concept to a whole new level. And I think that's it. Our standards are down. The other thing is Donald Trump is an enigma. Look, he has a cult following. That's what they are. And when you say the small group of Republicans, we're not that small. We're the majority of Republicans do not support Donald Trump. You can look at any poll you want. The reality is who's taking those polls? The people taking the polls in support of are the ones in support of Donald Trump. They want the world to know they love him. They're a cult. They're championing. They're cheering. The rest of us aren't even weighing in on these polls because they don't matter. They're irrelevant. And we're not the ones being asked the question. We're not the ones answering it. So you talk to Republicans in the street. I'm in New Hampshire, where obviously most of us are very informed electorate. And I know very few that actually support Donald Trump. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I feel your pain. If the majority of Republicans feel the way you feel, and why is it that the entire, it seems, the entire Republican congressional delegations from all over the country, senators and members of Congress, are all staying behind Donald Trump? How do you explain that? I explain it, it very simply because they're doing the same thing the media is doing and they're believing polls and they don't know how to read them. It's very simple. They think the electorate wants them to be this way. They don't want them to be this way. Kevin McCarthy, it, I always held him in pretty high regard. I don't know what he's doing afraid of Donald Trump. What are you guys? I've said this on the show before. What are you guys afraid of? The majority of Americans do not support Donald Trump. Donald Trump has no chance. Campaigns are math. There is no chance Donald Trump will be elected again to the White House. I don't know what they're afraid of other than, do you know what? They're getting a lot of money, just like Donald Trump, standing behind him. Their coffers are full because they're standing behind Donald Trump. That's so what they get out of them. Just so I understand your argument, Richard Nixon was famous for referring to a vast silent majority. And in essence, what you're arguing here is no irony intended that there is a silent majority. Absolutely. And it, this is an emperor has no clothes situation where everyone is afraid to come out and say it, but at a grassroots level, and you are, look, New Hampshire, for all that I make fun of New Hampshire and its role in the presidential nomination process, there's no doubt that New Hampshire voters, because they've been trained to this role, pay a little bit more attention than your average American because they have this attention lavished on them. What you're telling me is that you talk to people, you are in, you are the target voter in New Hampshire for these Republican presidential candidates. And by your reckoning, the majority of grassroots Republican voters do not support Donald Trump. And if Republican leaders could cotton on to that, basically they're getting juked by polling. 
that's being they're getting to by polling and the success of fundraising because cult is going to cult. And if you're Donald Trump's the leader, but then there's always lieutenants in the cult, and the lieutenants get support from the underlings too. And that's what's happening here. No, the majority. And, and if Paul wants to go on polls, there was a poll out that gave Donald Trump in New Hampshire. This was just New Hampshire, and again, it only polled Republicans, did not poll independents, which I think is foolish and inaccurate polling because independents can vote in a Republican or Democratic primary in New Hampshire. Thirty-eight percent supported Donald Trump. That is sixty-two percent of the people that actually took the poll that want someone else. 62% in New Hampshire Republicans want someone else of those that answered a poll, which is the insider of insiders. That's telling. So what you're also suggesting, if we had an economist on this show, what they would say is there is a market failure here. Or another way of putting it is a market opportunity that if someone in the field were bold enough, and Chris Christie is trying this to stand up to Donald Trump, there is a potential huge well of support out there. If this is the case, that the majority of Republican primary voters do not support Donald Trump and are looking for an alternative, and you could be right about that, why is the Chris Christie argument not working? Because he's focusing in New Hampshire and he's going after Trump. And why haven't any of the alternatives caught fire? Is it because they are themselves highly flawed. Well, you have to break them down. With Mike Pence, for instance, it's because the left thinks he didn't separate himself soon enough from Donald Trump. Not the left of the Republican Party, the moderates of the Republican Party, let me say. Who's left in the Republican uh, Party? You know, um, yes. right. They think right. Mike Pence didn't separate himself from Donald Trump soon enough, fast enough, or loud enough. Uh -huh. And then you have the section of the Republican Party that support Donald Trump and therefore think Mike Pence is Satan and probably would have supported him being hung by the insurrectionists on January 6th. So he's got that problem. You got Vivek Ramaswamy, who I don't know, is a rapper now or something if you guys didn't see that you really got to watch it he emulated eminem rapped at a fair in iowa it was strange and i love the song and it was odd but he is just so supportive of trump that anyone he's courting is going to vote for trump you got ron DeSantis, who was all trump light and now he's trying not to be trump light he's actually got a very smart ad out in new hampshire now where he criticizes trump for criticizing chris sununu the most popular pu Republican governor in the state, but it might be a little too late. So you can go through every one of them, what their flaws are. And then you got like a Doug Bur Burgum, who no one's ever heard of. And the problem with all of them is guys target independence. 42% approximately, give or take a number of New Hampshire are independents. That is the largest political block in the state. They can vote. They're not going to bother voting in the Democratic primary because I guess there's technically a choice with RFK, but there isn't really one. So they're going to pull a Republican ballot. You target them and get 5% of Republicans and 80% of the independents that pull a Republican ballot, you can beat Donald Trump. No one's doing it. I don't know why. I have a, and have for an hire, alternative if someone theory. wants to do that strategy. The theory here, bear with me. One of the things we saw after Donald Trump was elected was a lot of loathsome people crawling out from under rocks and feeling free to express their hatred and vitriol. The reason we saw a rise in bigotry anti-Semitic incidents, racist incidents, was that these people, this is what social scientists think, not me, is that Donald Trump had turned dog whistles into regular old whistles and given them a permission structure. He basically said, there is no social problem with being this way, with speaking this way, with doing these things. And he had essentially said, if I do it, you can do it and they felt free to express themselves. I think in a different way, what you're identifying, Alicia, is that Republican voters need a little bit of permission structure. They need to see leaders who they admire, who they trust, who have credibility with them, 
come out and say this. I want to read you what one Republican leader said. The Democratic administration has greatly lost the confidence of the American people by its complacency and the leak of vital secrets to Russia through key officials in the Democratic administration. There are enough proved cases to make this point without diluting our criticism with unproved charges. Surely these are sufficient reasons to make it clear to the American people that it's time for a change and that a Republican victory is necessary to the security of this country. Surely it is clear that this nation will continue to suffer as long as it's governed by the present ineffective Democratic administration. Yet to displace it with a Republican regime, embracing a philosophy that lacks political integrity or intellectual honesty would prove equally disastrous to this nation. The nation sorely needs a Republican victory, but I don't want to see the Republican Party ride to political victory on the four horsemen of calumny, fear, ignorance, bigotry, and smear. I doubt if the Republican Party could simply because I don't believe the American people will uphold any political party that puts political exploitation above national interest. Now, that was a Republican U.S. Senator who said that. Unfortunately, she said that 73 years ago. That was Margaret Chase Smith speaking. 1950. 1950, speaking of Senator Joe McCarthy. But the reason, obviously, that I hit the ball there was that, boy, that situation, that speech could apply. You could see Republican senators, word for word, giving that speech today, and it would apply, and it would connect, and it would make sense. And six Republican senators signed on to Senator Margaret Chase's speech at the time, and it began the downfall of Joe McCarthy. And we're not seeing that today. I don't think there's a singular figure that has the authority, the credibility, the pure liking that Donald Trump has with the Republican base. I think it would take multiple people. And I think it would take them standing up together and giving what came to be known in Senator Smith's case as the Declaration of Conscience speech. And I guess my question is, why aren't we seeing the Republican Party do this? We don't have a John McCain or one like him, right? He's someone who could have and probably would have. I don't want to speak for what a deceased man would do, but he seems like the kind of leader that would have actually been a leader. The problem is any Republican who would do it, could do it, and has a voice. Mitt Romney, for instance, has lost credibility with other chunks of the party. And look, he's come out and been very vocal from day one, but no one's listening. And that could be style. That could be performance. That may not be anything more than that. I don't know We've if we've got a Republican leader that has taken charge against Donald Trump in a way that isn't just bashing. I get what Chris Christie's doing but it's not effective. There has to be someone out there that can rise to the top by not just criticizing Donald Trump, but by praising America, by reminding us what she is, that Ronald Reagan light on the hill type comment moment. There is someone there. We may not know who he is yet or she is or how that can come about, but that is what we're going to need to get out of this fog of this phase of fog that we're in. We're bad place right now. And look, I do not think Joe Biden's a great president, and I think he's too old to run for re-election. But the candor Republicans on the far, they're not even the far right because they don't care about policy. The Donald Trump Republicans say is that Joe Biden's destroying the fabric of the nation. The country's going to hell. None of that's true. I don't think he's a good president, but that's based on policy. It's not the destruction of the United States of America. That's what elections are for. Change it next time around. With Donald Trump, the difference is, and I do not say this lightly because I'm not an extremist person who screams about this stuff all the time. A Donald Trump's second term could actually be the destruction of democracy. I truly believe that. America as we know it could change forever in a way that is irreturnable 
to what she was intended to be. And we need someone who has a voice that someone will listen to, to come out and just talk about the greatness of this country and what we can have in the future and give us a shining city on the hill image again. I don't know who that is, but that person's out there somewhere and I'm waiting for him or her to come forward. The only friendly amendment I would offer to that is, I just don't think there's a singular figure anymore. There might have been 10 years ago, 15 years ago. At this point, what I think it would take is a consortium. And I don't think it would just be people inside politics. I think it would involve famous entertainers, athletes. I think it would take people who have, I think it would take country music stars. I think it would take people who have credibility and respect from the Republican base to all stand up together and say, no more. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I guess I agree with Alicia. I agree with Matt. I agree with both of you that there is a vacuum of truth and conscience. And until someone or some people begin again to take a realistic look at where the country is and pose some optimistic, realistic vision of where they as call them Republicans, want to take this, we're going to be in this morass of truthless, consciousless, dysfunctional party politics. Because right now, as far as I can tell, there's a cult, there's not a Republican party. And Alicia, you may argue that the majority of Republican voters are not supporting Trump, despite what the polls are telling us. It's a sad state of affairs. I don't know who it is and what it what the spark takes. Does it take four indictments in four 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 separate jurisdictions and 91 felony counts? Matt Robeson has been arguing in Newsweek that eventually that will doom Trump's chances. So far, all it's done is add to his fundraising coffers because people rally around it. So there is a there is some kind of political sickness afoot in America that has gripped the Republican Party and strangled its sense of consciousness and patriotism. Because to call Donald Trump, who incited an insurrection on January 6th, the true patriot, and to follow him over the cliff, that's what's going on with the Republican Party. It's bad for America. Because as much as I disagree with your policy prescriptions, what we need in the country is competing optimistic visions of what the country can be, how to get there. The Republicans may have a different idea, call it conservative principles, but we don't even have, we don't have a real marketplace of ideas anymore. The Republican Party is totally, complete bankrupt. First of all, I agree we don't have a proper marketplace of ideas anymore, but it's not because the Republican Party doesn't have ideals. It's because we are being strangled by the Donald Trump supporters. They are a minority, but they are a very loud, vocal minority. The other thing is people are afraid, and I put myself in this group. I was contacted after the last round of indictments by a conservative publication and to comment on it, and my quote that was printed was, no, I'm not commenting. I don't want my house blown up. And that was in part real. That's how I feel. I wouldn't comment on a conservative publication on it. And that's what got printed. And I said, yes, you can print that because I want these Trump people who are happy you've silenced me. I want you to understand someday when you wake up, that's what you've done to us. You silenced us and you keep preaching free speech. You silenced us because my husband said, stop talking about Trump in the paper because you're going to get us killed. That's the real conversations going on. One of the reasons that Democrats have been so keen emotionally 
on these prosecutions is not just, as Paul expressed last week, our anger and our sense of outrage and desire for revenge, but it's because from our standpoint, what we see is a Republican Party that's in an abusive relationship and can't get out of it. And sometimes what you need to do as the neighbor is call the cops. And because the person who is being abused cannot get out and they may there may be all kinds of psychological reasons there may be a danger to them and it may be that what we see as craven cowardly political behavior that kevin mccarthy is calling this you know what you just said alicia right all of these republican leaders saying oh this is a political persecution blah 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 and all this nonsense what democrats see as craven and cowardly is republican being calculating and saying look if i stand up i'm going to throw away my career i'm going to be the sacrificial lamb i lose and no one's any better off so why should i do it sometimes what you need to do is call the cops sometimes you need to have an intervention from law and law enforcement to break this and so the part of the reason i think that democrats have been so excited by this is we see our old friends, our estranged friends, the Republican Party, under the spell of this abusive relationship. And we're like, look, maybe if the man goes to prison, that will break the spell. But there's also another intriguing legal avenue. And I want to I turn to this for just a couple of minutes. We don't really have time to do this justice in this episode. We're going to try our best. If you find this intriguing and interesting, listeners and viewers, we will try to circle back to it and do a deeper analysis. There's a fascinating, and this, I, mean, I sound like Joe Biden here, this, I'm serious. There's a fascinating scholarly legal article. Paul definitely does better imitations, just saying. That just came out. Oh, gosh. No, I'm not trying to sound like him. I'm just using his wording. It's called The Sweep and Force of Section 3. It is a preprint, a preprint in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. No, I do not go scrolling through that publication regularly. This was brought to my attention by so Tim Snyder, says. the Yale Law. Yeah, who knows what I get up to with a glass of tea at night? The University um, of Pennsylvania Ivy League. They are technically in the Ivy League. Go ahead, go ahead. Anyway, so let me pick, let me pick what, up. Go this. ahead, Paul. Okay, tell so us what this is about. Two conservative scholars argue that Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, which prevents somebody who participates or incites an insurrection from holding federal office, although it may originally have been intended to apply to civil war insurrectionists, has broader applicability. They further argue that it should, that we have now reached a stage with Donald Trump where constitutionally he should be ineligible to hold office, and that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is, as they argue, self-executing. It is, it is a very interesting argument. And then the question arises, how in the world, if Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-executing, how would it work? So in my fantasy- it, Hold on, I want to be clear Jennifer Aniston? I'm going oh, to no, okay. I want to be clear oh, okay. about this, that this is not just your fantasy. You think that there is a real legal argument to be had for what you're outlining here. So I think there's a legal argument for secretaries of states who are in charge of their ballots. And that for the moment, I won't point to any specific secretary of state, although it would be interesting for the first in the nation primary secretary of state to take this view, that the secretary of states looking at the plain evidence 
that is out in the public, Trump's speech inciting the riot on January 6th, his failure while sitting in the Oval Office to do anything to stop the riot, qualifies as inciting, supporting an insurrection and could simply rule him ineligible because of his participation in the insurrection to have his name on the Republican primary ballot. There would be an immediate court challenge, of course. It would be Donald Trump versus XYZ State Secretary of State. It would go to the state courts, then to the federal courts, then to the Supreme Court. Who knows how it would end? Now, there are very- Can be clear on one point here? Sure. When you say self-executing, what you mean is that normally, and the, the authors address this specifically, normally, in order for someone to receive criminal sanction in this country, to receive a penalty under force of law, they have to have been found guilty. As Alicia said earlier, we are innocent until proven guilty. What the authors specifically say is that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, this is in the Constitution, so therefore the Constitution, this section, supersedes other sections of the Constitution, including the Due Process Clause, meaning that you don't need to be found guilty in a criminal trial in order for a Secretary of State to find in their judgment that you are ineligible because you have fomented an insurrection. That's the argument. Others would say it requires an act of the state legislature to give affirmative power to the Secretary of State to rule somebody ineligible. Because if in most, and I'm most familiar with New Hampshire, the qualifications for getting on the ballot are listed and they're very minimal. It's really easy to list your name as a candidate for president on the New Hampshire presidential ballot. Whether, and let's just say, without going into the details, whether you're a member of a party or an independent, the requirements are minimal. There is nothing that, that I'm aware of in New Hampshire statutes, for example, that gives the Secretary of State the power to rule somebody ineligible, but nor is there a proscription, a prohibition in the statutes from a Secretary of State ruling somebody ineligible. But people argue it would take an act of the state legislature. This, look, as unprecedented as the situation we're in, a former president facing 91 felony counts and having incited an insurrection, as unprecedented as that situation is, this, what we're talking about, is as unprecedented in American history, untested and very vague in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. There's no procedure laid out. There's, there's nothing that tells us there's no roadmap given. The authors of the article argue that legally self-executing means that you don't need permission from a state legislature. Let's hold that aside a second, though. My concern here is that I, I'm very attracted to this argument for the reasons that I laid out before, because I see this as a situation where the Republican Party is in an abusive relationship that they can't get out of. And by the way, I grew up around this. My mother was the leader of the New York City Task Force on Child Abuse. She knows a lot about these kinds of abusive situations. This was just the area that I was steeped in as a policy matter growing up. And I see this as an abusive situation. I think the Republican Party needs help getting out of it. I'm attracted to this avenue. What I'm worried about is that once you unleash this, what is, you have the pattern that, that, that is manifested around every issue that has to do with Donald Trump. You have legitimate, real, obvious infractions by Donald Trump 
and his cabal on one side, and then you have invented conspiracies on the other side. And you have Republican politicians who legitimize both sides. And they say, oh, the prosecution of Trump is just political. So we're going to respond in kind. It's all political. He's weaponized the Justice Department. It's a DARVO. It's a reversal of victim and offender, even though it is Donald Trump who weaponized the Justice Department by having his Justice Department go after legitimate elections in 2020. That's what he and his enablers in Congress are accusing the Biden administration of doing now. So if we go down this legal avenue and you have a Secretary of State declare Donald Trump under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is not eligible to be on the ballot in this state because he led an insurrection. We are just a hop, skip, and a jump from a Republican Secretary of State saying Joe Biden is not eligible to be on the ballot because a plain English reading of the 14th Amendment says that anyone who has tried to, let me get it here, engage in insurrection or rebellion or given aid or comfort to the enemies of the Constitution. And they will say, Joe Biden has failed in enforcing our borders. Therefore, he has given aid and comfort to enemies of the Constitution. Therefore, he is ineligible to appear on the ballot. That's my concern is that we might be unleashing Pandora's box here of trouble that we cannot get out of. Alicia, what's your response? I agree with everything you just said. In, in the long game, it's a terrible idea. It's it. Oh, every secretary of state, every time. Look, Government has been given in parts the authority to weaponize. You're right. Donald Trump first tried it. Maybe he did before, but first tried to try to get the DOJ to look into election lies that weren't real. Fortunately, Bill Barr said no. They they have attempted to weaponize government. They have threatened to weaponize government. The biggest irony in the million emails I get from Team Donald Trump every day is that they say the government's been weaponized and reelected. I'm going to weaponize it even more, and I'm going to go after the people who weaponized it against me. It's a bizarre reality, and his people are gobbling it up. So I agree with you it's a bad idea in the long game to invoke it i also will say and i'm not a ivy league constitutional scholar or a non-ivy league constitutional scholar so read they can read it how they want i don't support it i don't agree with it i do not think that any state elected official states or government secretaries of state or government cannot should not ever punish an american unless they have been adjudicated that is our foundation i believe that look i don't want donald trump on the ballot i certainly don't want him in the white house but if he qualifies in every, in the states that he'll be putting his name on the ballot then he gets to be on the ballot and no government should intervene in our legal proceedings or our election process to say otherwise. Paul, what do you think? Is well, this an avenue that we should be exploring? I'm not sure. I haven't read the article thoroughly. I, frankly, I want to digest the article, but I think it's a fascinating, it, it's certainly, given that there is no other proscription, prohibition in the United States Constitution for disqualifying Donald Trump, if he's a convicted felon in an orange jumpsuit talking to his chief of staff through the wormhole at the visitor center about what his cabinet ought to do after he's elected president, the Constitution doesn't prevent that scenario. This provision, clearly, somebody who has participated, incited an insurrection from holding federal office. It seems to me that it's worth exploring, given the constitutional crisis we face with a candidate for president facing 91 felony counts in four different jurisdictions and the plain substantial public evidence of his wrongdoing in connection with what was an insurrection on January 6th. 
it's certainly worth looking at whether or not it's a good precedent or a bad precedent. I hear your arguments. I hear your arguments against using this kind this kind of provision. Donald Trump, Donald Trump was called by a fringe political a presidential candidate who I happen to be employed by as a phenomenon. We don't want this to ever happen again in American history. We have to figure out a way, clamp down to, to put Donald Trump away, in my view. He ought to go to prison. He ought to be ineligible from running for, pre- for running for president. There is a constitutional basis to help that happen, although there is no good roadmap as to how it happens. And yes, the consequences may be challenging, but the facts in this case certainly support the application of that provision. We're going to have to revisit this issue because I have a feeling that it is going to be driving a lot of conversation as we move further and further down the legal road. Why don't we leave it here for now, though, because there is so much more to unpack and we will continue to do that. So for Paul and Alicia, I'm going to see you next time.